Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everyone. Welcome to the LSE for the Wollstonecraft 2023 lecture. We at the LSE International Inequalities are delighted to host this lecture to carry forth the flames of Mary Wollstonecraft. It's our first in-person lecture. It's really amazing to have all of you with us. Thank you for coming. A late 18th century activist and intellectual, Mary Wollstonecraft was a pioneering fighter for women's rights and all the way back in 1792 blew up the myth that women are naturally inferior to men. My name is Alpa Shah, and I'm a professor of anthropology here at the London School of Economics. I'm really, really pleased to be here with B. Rowland, who's in the middle there, chair of the Wollstonecraft Society, that has initiated this amazing annual lecture. And to welcome both our online audience, yeah, I guess I can't see them, and, and everyone who's in the theatre here today. So it's our really great pleasure to especially welcome Angela, Angela Saini, uh, our 2023 Wollstonecraft lecturer. We will honor the legacy of Mary Wollstonecraft through a discussion of Angela's just published book, The Patriots, How Men Came to Rule the World. Angela is an award-winning British journalist and author based in New York. She presents radio and television programs, and her writing has appeared in many public forums, not least National Geographic, New Scientist, and The Wired. In recent years, Angela has been known for books which tackle race science and gender inequality. The Patriarchs is a grand sweep of history from before 7400 BCE to the current day, shoring up how across time and space, patriarchy is neither natural nor inevitable. We've always had the possibility of organizing life differently. Before I hand over to Angela to tell us more about her thesis, her book, I'll give the floor to B. B. Rowlett is a writer and public speaker and a programmer of events at the British Library. Her most recent book, In Search of Mary, retraced Wollstonecraft's 1795 treasure hunt over the Skagarat Sea. B. Rowlett led the successful campaign for the Wollstonecraft Memorial Sculpture, whose fruits we can all see at Newington Green in Hackney. I went there last night to pay homage <laughs> before today. B will speak for just a few minutes before handing over to Angela to present her lecture for just over half an hour. For Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSEWollstonecraft. This event is being recorded and we will hopefully be able to make it available as a podcast subject to technical difficulties. As usual, there's going to be a chance for you to put questions to Angela. For our online audience, you can submit the questions via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Please let us know your name and affiliation. And for those of you who are in the theatre here, I'll let you know when we will open up the floor for questions. You can raise your hand and then indicate you know, that you want to pose a question and we'll run that after Angela's talk. Uh, following the event, there's going to be a chance for you to buy copies if you wish outside the lecture theatre and Angela will be there to sign any copies. Okay, uh, that's over uh, with all 
Douglas Technicalities B, come okay. over and then I introduce B to you here. Thank you so much, Alpa, and thank you to the International Inequalities Institute, and to you guys for coming here when it's sunny. You won't regret it. <laughs> My name's Bea Rolatz of the Wollstonecraft Society. We're a human rights education charity, and we exist to bring the legacy of Mary Wollstonecraft into the lives of young people. Our first lecture was given by someone much beloved in this place, the Nobel laureate and patron of the Wollstonecraft Society, Professor Amartya Sen. He was followed last year by Dame Helena Kennedy, KC, in conversation with the Afghan lawyer, Fozia Amini. So the lecture has some pretty big shoes to fill, but that's okay because Angela's here, so it's not a problem. <laughs> Onwards, who is Mary Wollstonecraft? You just mentioned a fearless advocate for justice, a pioneering education campaigner, an abolitionist, an early architect of what we now call human rights the foremother of feminism, and a troublemaker and a daredevil in her personal life. And in Amartya Sen's own words, perhaps the most underestimated thinker of the 18th century. When I tell you that she's Frankenstein's granny, trust me, that's the least <laughs> sensational thing about her. She was born in Spitalfields, just down the road, into a family sliding down the social scale, a family that did not believe in educating girls, a peripatetic family riven with violence and alcoholism. She dragged herself up by her bootstraps, by her raw genius, and by her experience of unfairness in her own life. She ends up as part of a community of radical dissenters in Newington Green and becomes a writer. She boasts to her sister, I am the first of a new genus. And she means a woman who lives by her pen. And her writing is fueled by rage. And it targets inequality, implacably. Like Angela, she looked at the world with original eyes, challenging the very foundations of the assumptions that we make about our place in the world. And also, like Angela, it's her method of reasoning that distinguishes her content from the usual polemic. Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of men, 1790, an astonishing text, it's short, get your hands on it, is reaching to set out a language of human rights, which didn't exist at the time. And her second vindication, the famous one, Rights of Woman, 1792, begins, I demand justice for one half of the human race. She articulated and published then the first call for gender equality in the English language, arguing that, first of all, women are human because of their capacity to reason, and secondly, they should therefore be educated. It's all about education with Wollstonecraft. What else? She lives through the reign of terror as a single mum. She has passionate love affairs with men and women. She writes bestsellers while on a treasure hunt, gallivanting around the Skagerrak Sea. She goes headlong into battle with pretty much every single vested interest in the country, makes a lot of enemies, dies in childbirth aged only 38, giving birth, of course, to Mary Shelley. Subsequently, her reputation was destroyed in a series of misogynistic attacks that went on for years. Is it any wonder that most people have never heard of her? I've been trying to change that for a long time. 
Amartya Sen points out, and I quote, we need Wollstonecraft today, not just for the neglected problems to which she drew attention, some of these problems continue to be neglected, but also for the way she established the need for reasoning, going beyond the immediate intuition and the necessity of universality in the fight for human rights in the contemporary world. If it's not inclusive, it's not justice. That quote was me. The Wollstonecraft Society generates free classroom materials for primary school children. We deliver copies of our Wollstonecraft comic book uh, into state school libraries up and down the country. And our materials fulfill multiple Ofsted requirements, so they're designed to be very teacher-friendly. Basically, all we want is for kids to encounter Mary Wollstonecraft before Andrew Tate slips into their socials. <laughs> so please help us to make this happen. Two of our volunteers will be flyering you on your way out to this effect. But right now, it's my honor and my huge pleasure to welcome to the stage, Angela Saini. Hi everyone. I feel like I've been set up to fail now. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to fill Amartya Sen or Helena Kennedy's shoes, but I'm going to do my absolute best. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here and such an honour to share a stage with Alpa and with B. What's remarkable about Mary Wollstonecraft for me is that you can read her today, centuries later, and her writing still seems somehow just as fresh and relevant as it did then. And sometimes I think even more so because the struggle for equality seems to go in waves. We go back and then we seem to go forward and then we go back. Um, we continue to ask so many of the same questions. And perhaps the most important of these questions, well, for me at least, is how men ever came to have as much power as they do. It's a fundamental one, but it's for some reason one that we don't ask that much. And that's what I want to explore today. I've been trying to answer it since I wrote one of my previous books, Inferior, it came out in 2017, and that was on the science of sex and gender difference. We know that the psychological and cognitive differences between men and women are slight, and on most measures even non-existent, despite what preconceptions you might have, despite all these myths that go around. We also know from anthropological data that humans haven't always been patriarchal or male-dominated. Societies haven't always looked the way they do now, obviously. We can see the devastating effects of what we call patriarchy. There's a huge literature and growing on that, on gender pay gaps, on sexist bias, on rates of domestic violence, on sexual double standards, on all the ways in which men uh, control women or have an advantage over women. Yet we still don't seem to have good explanations for how it came to this. Why is it this way at all? And of course, this was a question that Wollstonecraft also speculated on. In A Vindication, she returns again and again to both religious and biological notions about male superiority that existed then and to some degree still exist now. I still hear people say to me, well, men are in charge or they've always had power because they're a bit bigger and a bit stronger. In her time, of course, the idea of this rigid, divine or physical binary that defined men's and women's lives was the principle on which everything in Europe had been built, including the scientific establishment. And this is why Europe's scientific academies, right from the outset, barred women as a matter of course. In fact, there were universities in Europe that wouldn't even allow professors to marry sometimes uh, for fear that just having a woman 
in the environment which somehow undermine what they were doing intellectually. Women were seen to be weaker by nature, the companions of men, to serve them. That was how Rousseau and other male philosophers believed we had been designed. This is what he, we were here for. But what Wollstonecraft challenged us to ask was very simple. Why would physical size decide who has power in a society? We only need to look at our own world around us, not just then, but even now, to know that the physically strongest men are not the ones in charge. It's not as though the prime ministers and presidents of this world are all weightlifters or athletes. <laughs> we know that. So why would this one average biological difference, not even an absolute one, because it's not the case that every man is stronger than every single woman, why would this one physical difference define how every man and woman lives? Why can't we be judged and treated as individuals on our own personal qualities, on our own merits? Wollstonecraft's answer, of course, is that we play the part in society for which we are raised. So we are inculcated into this. We are trained into these gender roles. And this gender order, then, is one that was created. And if it was created, then surely there's a history of it. Then we should be able to track that history and know how it was created. And if we can trace it, then maybe we can also undo it. And that's a provocative thing here. Efforts to understand that history of inequality began in Europe around the same time that Wollstonecraft was writing. Um, and part of the reason for this, of course, was that revolutions were happening, namely, I mean, the most important, the French Revolution, and later the formation of the United States as well, which together made people think, many people think for the first time, well, especially in the West, if we can live without certain hierarchies, then can we live without others? Where do these hierarchies come from? Why have we organized things in this way? If we can reorder the class order, then can we also reorder other things? If it's possible to create a society without monarchy, then what else could we live without? By the middle of the 19th century, theories began to emerge exploring whether patriarchy might be the product of civilization that it was something inevitable that happens as people live in larger and larger communities and things start to be organized differently um, as we build these kind of more sophisticated settlements and cities and accumulate property this account goes men must have begun to assert their paternity because they wanted to retain that property for themselves and for their sons over generations. And I'm sure many of you have heard this idea that it was the advent of property that led to the downfall of women. And of course, that explanation, again, was shaped by what philosophers in Europe knew at the time, because women were treated as property in Europe at that time. The laws of marriage in England said that wives were the property of their husbands. In England, it took until 1839 for women to have the right to petition for the custody of their own children because everybody in the household was seen as belonging to the father's empire, as part of his household, in the same way that children were or slaves might be or domestic servants. In France, until 1907, a married woman would see whatever wages she earned go straight to her husband because the product of her labor was even seen to be, be the property of him. As recently as 1965, and I have to say the French laws on this are some of the worst in Europe, as recently as 1965, a French husband could legally stop his wife from working because, again, her labor belonged to him. So the lesson of European society was that men seemed driven to own property. 
They cared about property, more than women did for some reason, including people. This was part of their nature, and that was what made patriarchy inevitable. How else can we explain this theory that says, as humans start to accumulate property, for some reason it's only men who care about keeping it? But what was missing from that account, of course, was that not every society on Earth is patriarchal. And that's something that European thinkers would later come to struggle with. Now, I live in New York, and if you drive upstate from the city, after a few hours, you hit Seneca Falls, which is this small town that's very famous in the US because it was where the world's first women's rights convention was held in 1848, and this picture. This is just outside the recreation of the Wesleyan Chapel, which was where that first women's rights convention was held. It's kind of, the entire town is a testament to this huge event and the women, the white middle-class women who made this event happen. There are memorials and paintings everywhere. But the story that's hidden away in the background of all of this, this is kind of the birthplace of women's rights, is that in 1590, so this is centuries before even the foundation of the United States, Seneca Falls was where indigenous Haudenosaunee women, at that time sometimes called the Iroquois, in fact even well into the 19th century known as the Iroquois, met to demand peace among their nations. And the reason they were able to do that was because women already held a huge amount of power in Haudenosaunee society, enormous amounts. Clan mothers predate the founding fathers by hundreds of years. So clan mothers still run local government in Haudenosaunee society. They are matrilineal. This is a matrilineal society, so descent is recognized through mothers and not through fathers. And I've interviewed people, in fact, in some Native American communities who have said to me, I didn't even know my father's or grandfather's history because that was never seen to be important. It was just not part of how we were raised. When Europeans encountered all of this, of course, it came as a shock. Their belief was that when they were overturning hierarchies, they were doing something new that the foundation of the United States on these egalitarian principles without a monarchy, with democracy, was something revolutionary, that they were doing something modern. So how could they square that with the fact that clearly already there were indigenous societies right where they lived that already had women who had huge amounts of power, who already practiced very egalitarian ways of organizing themselves? Let's remember that for white women's rights activists at their time, one of the arguments for suffrage was that equality was kind of symbol of modernity. That if the United States really wanted to show itself to be at the forefront of the rest of the world, show the rest of the world the way, then it had to give women the vote in order to be seen to be modern. Women's liberation was seen to be a break from the past, from savagery and barbarism. So how could they reconcile that with this? with the societies that they saw around them? Well, the answer was that European anthropologists came up with this idea that matriarchy was a primitive state then, that what they were seeing among indigenous societies, not just in the Americas but in other parts of the world, was uh, something that belonged to the past, and that possibly because it belonged to the past, this was how everybody had lived once upon a time, that all human societies were matriarchal once. And again, you may recognize this because this is sometimes still repeated in feminist literature, that humans were matriarchal and then we became patriarchal at some point in prehistory. Now, of course, the reason that some indigenous societies weren't patriarchal 
wasn't because they weren't civilized or modern or they just hadn't become as sophisticated as European societies had. It was because they had just organized themselves differently. They were just as modern. They had just organized themselves a different way. We still live with this myth that matriarchy belongs to the past somehow, that a civilized modern society can't possibly be organized in any other way than patriarchy. Friedrich Engels, again, you may recognize this from his work, uh, The Socialist Philosopher, he had an entire section in Origins of the Family, Private Property and the State on the Haudenosaunee, or the Iroquois as he listed it there, in which he states very clearly that in this society all are equal and free, the women included. So this was a well-documented thing by ethnologists at the time. And since matriarchy, or mother right, as it was described then, was a primitive state, then there must have been a change at some point. This is how Engels describes it. And what he calls it is the world historical defeat of the female sex. And again, this is rung through feminist literature for centuries. We still hear it, that there was this big catastrophic point in history at which matriarchies were overturned and patriarchies were created. I still hear people make that claim, even though it rests on this flawed and dismissive assumption that these societies, Haudenosaunee and others, were not civilized, that they were not modern in their own way. They just developed different ways of organizing themselves. So this was an inherently biased assumption. You could say a racist assumption, because it was comparing societies, assuming one was more developed than the other. To outsiders, among Native Americans, it was the Europeans who felt like savages and barbarians. And you can see this in the literature as well, that they can't believe the way that European colonists are behaving, that they feel backwards to them. This is all relative. But once you've framed this as a civilizational issue, once that is the way in which you imagine history, that matriarchy belongs to a backward past and patriarchy belongs as the inevitable next step, then that obviously has devastating consequences, and it did have devastating consequences in the United States. What you see is settler colonialists then trying to civilize people into patriarchy. You know, this is the next logical step then for you. If you're going to be civilized, then you need to be patriarchal. Part of the horrific process of this involved shifting power from women to men systematically, domesticating women. The United States was built on this very firm principle of the domesticated woman. And this is why the founding fathers very clearly, even though they thought about it, did not give women the vote, because it was only seen to be necessary for them to exercise their political power vicariously through their husbands and their sons. They didn't need to have the vote because their place was in the home. Instead of working outdoors, as Haudenosaunee women had always done, in fact, there's many Native American societies in which agriculture is managed by women, controlled by women, they were expected to do domestic work. They were pushed within that different space. They had to adopt patrilineal systems of marriage. That was one of the requirements. And fathers even were told that their children had to be named after them. So just imagine, this is a matrilineal society which children are named after the mothers. These mothers are being told for the first time, you have to name your children after the father. And you can see again in the literature this enormous resistance, this tussle. Women desperately saying, well, can I name this child after my father instead? Can I find some way around this? And sometimes those battles were won, sometimes they were lost. But that continued for centuries. 
They were inducted into Christianity. It's only relatively recently that we've started to see the full horror of the indigenous boarding school system in the Americas, and many children died in that system. Many more were abused. But one of the things uh, that system did in New York State was to train young girls to be domestic housewives and train young boys to be heads of their family, to do agricultural work outdoors, to expect them to be leaders. Education was part of the colonial project and also a vehicle for oppression, for changing how people lived. Wollstonecraft wrote a lot about the transformative power of education. And unfortunately, you know, depending on how that tool is used, how education is used as a tool, that really does determine the rules by which we live. And we can see that so clearly in this story, that once young children are told that patriarchy is a system by which you must live, then they live it. And the repercussions of that are still being felt among indigenous Americans today. The myth of matriarchal prehistory then itself contributed to the destruction of matrilineal and matrilocal traditions in the world. We can see it on the other side of the world, in India, this time under pressure from British colonialists for exactly the same reason. In the southern state of Kerala, centered around the kingdom of Travancore, and I can recommend the historian Manu Pillai's book here, which looks so beautifully at this topic. There was this traditionally matrilineal society, the Nairs, where families in the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries <coughs> lived in these huge extended family homes known as Taravads, these huge households. And this legacy is often given as one reason why Kerala today is one of the states in India which has the highest rates of female literacy. In fact, for as long as records have been kept, female literacy has been around the same as male literacy and well above 90%. So Manu Pillai writes, Naira women always had the security of the homes they were born in throughout their lives and were not dependent on their husbands. He adds, they were effectively at par with men when it came to sexual rights. Again, this is a matrilineal society in which descent is recognised through mothers. Fathers are actually quite peripheral here. And this is where this picture is so important. This is a famous painting that at the end of the 19th century really illustrates the change that was coming to that part of Kerala that before, fathers were not important to their households. The most important person raising children, the most important male raising children, would be uncles. But here in this picture, you can see this is a woman with her baby and the dog down there, all of them looking, waiting for somebody to come. And that person is Papa, it's father. So suddenly, this person that we cannot see has become the focus of attention for the family unit. Someone who didn't really matter before has now suddenly become the focus of the entire family. Again, this horrified British authorities in India. They did everything possible to undermine the authority of women in Naira households throughout the 19th century, early 20th century. And this combined <coughs> with cultural and social forces of Naira men traveling and working outside their communities, seeing different ways of life, seeing that patriarchy was a possibility and how that might give them new systems of inheritance, how then they might be able to inherit property, not just the daughters of households, how you know, wealth and property might be shared for the first time. The cultural dial shifted. And because of this pressure then, people began to believe, because of what British colonialists were saying, people in the rest of India were saying, that their customs were backward, that matriline was not a way to live if they wanted to be modern. If they wanted to be modern, then they had to live patriarchal lives. 
in these nuclear families in which the entire focus was the father for the first time. In 1976, so this is after the British had left India, and this is how profound those cultural impacts can be. This is how easy it is. Actually, I say easy, but this happened over many, many decades. It was this gradual cultural shift. It wasn't particularly violent. It happened through the tweaking of laws, the small changes in how people lived, a change in what was seen to be modern, because everybody wants to be modern. And through that tiny cultural dial shifting, by 1976, even after the British had left, that was when the Kerala legislature abolished matrilineal altogether. It couldn't be a system anymore in that state. Those big, beautiful taravads in which these huge families lived were sold off. They fell into disrepair. There was a brilliant piece of research that was done in the 1990s where someone went to look at these old Taravads, and she found that where before there had been dozens of people living in these family homes, now there was just one old person mm -hmm. who could remember how it used to be. The houses were disappearing. Social change didn't happen like a thunderbolt. It came slowly, creeping in until people didn't know what they had lost until it was gone. And this matters because it shows us how social change really works. It isn't some big catastrophic thing that happens just because some people decide to start farming or you know, property suddenly appears in people's imagination as a thing. This is how social change has always happened, slowly. It's about changing minds and customs as well as laws and systems of government. And it takes centuries, sometimes millennia. And that's not to say that matrilineal hasn't survived. It has, even through all this patriarchal pressure over the centuries, and I don't want to place the blame fully at European colonists because this predates that. There have been many empires and many large powers throughout history for thousands of years that have imposed these patriarchal systems of rule on people. But I have only one illustration in my book, and it's this map. It's a map of the known existing matrilineal societies in the world. So I have the Nairs there, but that's only as a reference for readers. But all the rest of them still exist. These are matrilineal communities that still exist to this day. There's a, around 160 of them. So this is where inheritance is still traced through mothers rather than through fathers. And you can see there's loads of them right across Africa. This is known as the matrilineal belt in Asia, in indigenous communities in the Americas still. Um, and some of these matrilineal traditions are thought to stretch back thousands of years. They're not as rare or as exceptional as some Western scholars have framed them. And in the distant past, there would have been even more. We would have seen much more social variation as you go into the past. So if you read The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow, they describe this. There's just this kind of cavalcade of different social forms that you would have had in the past, which makes perfect sense because we are one of the most adaptable species imaginable. We can live in so many different ways. And this brings us back to Wollstonecraft. She was always careful to emphasize just how different society might look if we were willing to be imaginative, if we weren't constrained by the way things are. That really is the lesson of human history, that we can live in so many different ways. Our brains, and again, I'm going to come back to the science here. I'm still a science journalist underneath. But our mm -hmm. brains are remarkably plastic, even into adulthood. That's something we've learned relatively recently. And that's really, if there's one thing that sets us apart from other species, including primates. You know, there was a study done to look at whether our brains were bigger than other primates. And they're not significantly, not in a huge way. But what they are is remarkably plastic. 
And that explains so much of the variation in how we live, all the different languages and different cultures and different social forms. The mistake is to believe that the way we live now is the only way possible. Wollstonecraft valued imagination as well as reason, and it's imagination that allows us to be socially nimble, to rebuild societies, to challenge dogma. She dared to dream of alternative societies on behalf of the rest of us, to say that you don't have to settle for what we have now. One of the first places I went to when I was writing my book was Chattel Huyuk. I wonder what she would have made of Chattel Huyuk. This is a very famous Neolithic settlement in southern Anatolia in Turkey. It's not very far from where the recent earthquakes happened near the border of Syria. It's a place that in the 1960s, when it was first excavated, was described as the oldest city in the world. And you know, people argue over whether it was a city or not. But what we can say it's, is it was very complex, really sophisticated. Thousands of people lived here. It was occupied from at least 7,400 BCE. So that's 5,000 years before the first pyramids went up in Egypt. Just to put into context how old this is, five millennia before the first pyramids in Egypt, 4,000 years before Stonehenge was built. It predates writing, or known writing. And although there are aspects to life here that we can recognize, so you can see here there's a hearth, and you know people are living inside these kind of roomed homes. In some ways, it was very different. So for example, there were no windows or doors on the sides. Instead, there would have been a hole in the roof, and you go in and out of your home through a ladder. So that's what that ladder was for, and you conduct your business on the top and new layers of the settlement were built on top of the old ones. There are these beautiful, vivid red frescoes of hunting scenes, of vultures picking apart dead bodies, bullhorns embedded in the walls, loads and loads of figurines. So there are things we can recognize, things that are new. But one thing I want to stress here is that women were not invisible in Chattelhuyuk. In fact, across that region, the Fertile Crescent region, these Neolithic sites, we see so many female figurines. And this one is one of the most incredible. Um, she is about as big as my hand, this size. Um, and I wish you could see her in person. My pictures do not do justice. But it's incredibly arresting, this figure, the seated woman of Chattelhuyuk. Here you can see what looks to be an older woman sitting completely upright. These indents in her skin maybe signifying age or, you know, that she's given birth to a lot of children or she, you know, whatever reason. And these beautiful, glorious rolls of fat spilling out all around her. And then underneath her resting hands, you can see there, you can just about see, are what look to be two big cats. Can you see looking straight ahead? They look almost like leopards. Almost like she had tamed these creatures, like she is in charge of them. This is a symbol of such authority that in the 1960s, when this was excavated, uh, archaeologists immediately said, this must be a goddess. Who, what else could it be? Even though it looks very naturalistic, it looks like it could be a real person. This must be a goddess. Now, we don't know if this represented a real person. We're all entitled to speculation because, frankly, we'll never know. But I would think this is a real person. It could be a mythical person or a divine person. But what all the evidence at Chattelhuyuk tells us is that we can't assume that patriarchy was present in prehistory because every measure that we have to measure gender inequality through archaeological data tells us that um, men and women lived pretty much the same lives here. 
And so you can measure these things through things like human remains. Uh, you can see what the kind of work that people did, what they ate, how they were buried. In every way, men and women spent around the same amount of time indoors or outdoors. So it's not the case that women were domesticated and men worked outside only. They did pretty much the same work. We don't see different patterns of kind of pressure on the skeletons. They ate pretty much the same food, which is important because people who have more social status tend to eat better food and more of it. And they were buried in roughly the same ways. And this was a site in which burials did matter. Often people were buried in platforms under their own houses. And sometimes their skulls were disinterred or plastered and moved around. So people really cared about the dead. Even the difference in height between men and women was slight at Chapel Huyuk. And I want you to think very carefully about what that means, because we have these very heated debates these days about sex differences. We very rarely stop to ask ourselves how much of the differences that we see are really biological. How we live has a huge impact on how we look and what our bodies look like. One of the archaeologists who led excavations here, Ian Hodder, told me that this was a community in which gender just didn't matter very much. And that raises a question. If this is what it was like, at least in some parts of the world more than 9,000 years ago, when and why did things change? When did life become more gendered, at least in this part of the world between Europe and Asia? Well, we don't see that turning point with the development of agriculture. There is this very common theory that agriculture led to property and then property led to women being controlled. Those timelines don't really match up. We have plant and animal domestication for a long time before we see signs of gender depression. When the world's first states emerged, that is when you really start to see signs of gender depression, like in ancient Mesopotamia. And the reason for this, at least you know, this is what we can speculate on based on the evidence that we have, is because of population. Keeping people inside a state, doing what you need them to do, not leaving, producing a surplus for the elites, that was the big challenge for those earlier states, for those in power. How do we stop people from just leaving? And for this, they needed to take an interest in the family, of course, because population is all about the family. First, you need people to have more children, because of course, if you don't have enough children, then you disintegrate. And those states also needed people to be available to defend them. So you need those children to be loyal to the state, willing to give up their lives if necessary when it comes to war. And that was a real issue then. This was a real demand on those early families that children might be needed to die in wars. Over time, those social norms, which were led, driven by the population concerns of the state, came to define how families behaved. So religious establishments, social norms, marriage laws, and this is over many thousands of years, slowly became to, came to serve those narrow interests, those population interests. We often think of patriarchy as starting in the family. So the word patriarchy itself means rule of the father. And that betrays this idea that we imagine that patriarchy started with the father and his family and then radiates outwards, that it goes from the family to the community to the society. Well, that's not what the evidence says. The evidence says exactly the opposite, that it started with those in top at, in the first states and then it filtered down into the family. And the reason we can assume that is, one, because of the, how the timelines work, but also we can see resistance within families to what was happening. 
So, for example, there are records that show in ancient Mesopotamia that a man might designate his daughter a son in order to allow her to inherit property. They knew that the laws weren't always working for them. They knew that they were too rigid to describe life the way they wanted to live it. But that's not what the patriarchal society allows you to do. As I said earlier, social change doesn't come like a thunderbolt. But again, it would be a mistake to assume that women lost all power immediately as soon as states emerged. Again, this wasn't sudden. This happened very, very slowly. Even the narrowest assessment of history that we have doesn't show some kind of single catastrophic destruction of women's rights as soon as a state appears. Instead, it's very slow, very gradual, and piecemeal, depending on where you are in the world. So for example, even the Mongol Empire into the 13th century, so this is very much later, this was a very deeply patriarchal society. It prized sons. But even here, women worked. They rode horses as well as the men, according to many accounts. They were talented archers. They were involved in trade. They were famous for being strong. In fact, there are some foreign accounts in which <laughs> Mongol women are described as androgynous because they are as strong as the men are. The historian Frank McLean has written, there was a particular admiration, I don't know if this is apocryphal, for the way that women could give birth standing up and then just carry on as though nothing had happened. And again, I don't know if that's true. Genghis Khan's own great-great-granddaughter, and here she is uh, depicted as Turandot, the Princess Kutalun, apparently insisted that any man who wanted to marry her first had to defeat her in wrestling, and according to legend, she beat a thousand men who tried. So we can see that the boundaries of gender, behavior, and power were still being worked out. It's not as though the state emerged and suddenly gendered rules immediately were introduced. People were still negotiating. There was negotiation within families, between families and the states, between husbands and wives. This was continuous, and this is why we see patchworks of difference around the world in different patriarchies. Patriarchies don't look the same. They don't look identical all over the world. They look different because of these particular social and historical differences. The story of how we get to what we've seen in the last few hundred years, these kind of rigid binary laws that deny women the right to work, to vote, uh, to be in the professions, to have public lives, to own their own property after marriage, to even have the right to their own children or keep their own earnings, all of that developed much, much later and in a much more fractured way. We don't see it from the beginning everywhere. But what we can still see is how those two original overarching concerns of the patriarchal state, birth rates and defense, are still primary preoccupations of the modern day patriarchal state. You can see it everywhere. When birth rates start to fall, the population explains so much of how nations behave. When birth rates start to fall, governments get nervous. We see it everywhere right now. In China, they removed the one-child policy. Women still weren't having enough children, so the government put out a call to officials, how can we increase birth rates? One official just recently came up with the idea that college students should be given a week off school to fall in love and hopefully get married and have kids, which I'm sure would never happen at the LSE. In Hungary, the government's latest plan to boost birth rates involves eliminating income tax for mothers under the age of 30. And arguably, we still see that defense issue in Russia. These queues of young men desperately trying to fight conscription, 
leaving the country because they don't want to fight in this war. Not just because they don't believe in the war, but because they're not all suited for fighting. We only need to look around us to know that not every woman wants to have kids. Not every man is suited to fighting or able to fight or wants to do it. But the patriarchal state doesn't care. All the patriarchal state wants is for you to be categorized, man or woman, and then your life to be decided by that categorization. This is seen as your duty as a citizen. We can see it in so many ways. You know, still these days, I hear women who don't want to have children described as selfish. Who are they being selfish for? For society, because society needs more kids. We see it arguably in the struggle over reproductive rights, you know, this abortion issue. Why does the state care whether you keep your baby or not? Why is it so concerned about this? It cares because of population. It needs you to have those babies. The very first state, modern state, to legalize abortion was the Soviet Union. And this was in service of women's liberation. You know, one of the very first things they did in 1920 was to say that abortion should be legal, no more dangerous backstreet abortions. And that order was later overturned by Joseph Stalin for one simple reason, birth rates had fallen too low in the Soviet Union. The individual doesn't matter in the patriarchal state. When we assert our independence then, when we live in ways that don't conform to social expectation, we are defying patriarchy at its most fundamental. This was the central theme of Wollstonecraft's work. Independence for her was everything. To be able to live life on your own terms, to be free of convention, to be able to assert your humanity, your individuality, the one thing that the patriarchal state does not want you to have is your own life lived your way. Every generation nurtures its fight for independence in its own way, I think. Um, and I think we see it now in this brilliant young generation coming up. I see it even in my son, he's only nine years old. But even there, this kind of refusal to accept gender norms, which I think older generations can find particularly threatening, there's nothing more anti-patriarchal than that. Even though Wollstonecraft did live in some ways that challenged the gender norms of her society, I think what she would have wanted from us is to go even further than that, to take it right back to the beginning and ask, how can we challenge everything? How can we start all over again? Is that possible? The timeless lesson of her work, I think, is to never accept society's ideas about what you must be or how you have to live, to never live inside a box and consider its walls natural rather than man-made. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, thank you so much, Angela, for this fabulous tour of history and making other ways possible. I'm going to take questions from the floor and from online in a few minutes, but I guess I wanted to use Chair's prerogative to ask you a question and also invite B to maybe have a little conversation if you're up for it. It was amazing to read your book and chart the story of, you know, which is actually a story of how things also went wrong, and you place a great importance on the state. I wanted to hear a little bit about another part of the story, which 
feminists have been putting forward. I'm thinking here about Maria Mies, who's just you know passed away, the great feminist, and I, I guess it's because of her I had it like on my mind as well. But also Silvia Federici and all you know the waiters for housework campaigns that began in the 70s, and so the our analysis was it's capital that really needed to make women into housewives. And this was accumulation on a grand scale. It enabled the unpaid labor of women to be exploited in the household and, and enabled mass accumulation on a grand scale. So I wanted to ask you about, yeah, what, you know, going back into the archaeological record as you've done so impressively in this book and where capital fits into the story alongside the state. I wish I had another hour and then I could have <laughs> covered that aspect. But this idea of slavery, which again, Wollstonecraft spoke a lot about. She often referred to women as effectively being slaves in their, in their homes and their families because that's how it looked at the time. You know, there was not that much at that time when you looked at European laws, there was not a huge amount of difference in how slaves might be treated and how the laws of marriage worked in some countries. Um, the fact that, you know, domestic violence against your wife was in some states sanctioned and in some states even now marital rape is still legal just goes to show that you know the institutions of marriage borrowed from institutions of slavery and captive taking which were widespread these are some of the oldest institutions of oppression human oppression that exist and the reason they exist in the form that they do is because we are able to dehumanize the other you know, this is something that we learn to do. And what captive taking and slavery does is bring the other into your home and then degrade them and exploit their labor for free. We learn to do that. And there is a really beautiful literature looking, especially by Orlando Patterson, the excellent scholar of slavery, looking at the ways in which the relationship between the slave and their master in some of these really old slave societies in antiquity was at once an exploitative one, but also a remarkably intimate one. That they were close, they were like family, but at the same time, there was a power imbalance there. And that's where you see these parallels. And the reason I start with the state rather than capital is because then we have to be able to ask, answer the question, if capital was so important to people, why was it so important to men and not to women then? And I think it's that birth question, that population question that domesticated women, and then that capital issue became you know, vital to these growing states. The idea that you can create a class of people whose labor you can then exploit for free once they've been domesticated, once they're already producing babies for you, is enormously powerful. This is why it's so defended, why it's so exported, why these empires and these powerful societies were so keen and were so successful in exporting this idea because labor for free, you know, an exploited class for free, which, you know, as much as we may want to push away from it, speaks to that part of every single one of us who cares about status and a little bit more for ourselves. We see this right throughout the history of slavery, that it wasn't just men keeping slaves, women were also keeping slaves. Women in antiquity would beat their slave girls. And what that shows us is that when we have the opportunity to have more power for ourselves, we take it. Mm. When we have the chance to have more status, we take it. 
Um, and I sometimes, you know, I don't go into psychology very much. I do wonder about these things as a science reporter. I do sometimes wonder where does this come from. You see manifestations of it, even on social media. Why do we care about likes and followers? Because we care about status. May I? Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of your writing, and I particularly admire the courage with which you always go to the really uncomfortable places. So you go to race, you go to gender, and then, of course, with this fantastic book, which everybody must buy, you take on the entire edifice and all of the um, varying oppressions within it. Um, but I suppose my question is about the way that you've done it, and... Um, as well as the extraordinary content, it's your use of reason and calmness. Um, because if we look to Wollstonecraft, particularly in the Vindications, she's so angry that her vein is practically bursting out of her head. Um, I mean, she does use different literary skills bring to bear on those subjects later in her writing career, but um, you don't, and it's, it's notable. And I wonder if that's a conscious decision because you realise that these are flammable topics. <laughs> Um, do you know, I'm so careful about this because of those uh, Twitter bros <laughs> online. I learned a very long time ago that my work was um, maybe more scrutinised mm -hmm. than male writers mm -hmm. or, non or white writers on these topics. Um, so I can't afford to get anything wrong and I can't afford to sound polemical, I can't afford to sound emotional because the first thing they will say is, she would say that, wouldn't she? That's why everything is heavily referenced, everything is very carefully measured and I know that's not to everyone's taste some you know sometimes we just want clear answers we just want there to be that one catastrophic historical defeat of the female sex we want there to be a simple answer but I wouldn't be true to the evidence if I gave people that and I have to stop where I know that we'd have no evidence thank you yeah. thanks yeah may I take questions from the floor and if you don't mind just saying your name and, and where you're coming from before you ask your question please Hi, thank you so much for the talk. My name is Kautar. Uh, I work in the financial industry, um, and I grew up in Morocco, actually. Uh, so I have two questions, please. Uh, the first one is, you painted how the causality works, basically, if I understand correctly, population pressure, state, then uh, imposes some type of you know, patriarchal model then that get, gets ingrained through time. And there are lots of communities now, for instance, in the Sahel or in other parts of the world where actually you have lots of population growth, weak states, high fertility rates, to the point where people have to emigrate. I mean, there, there are significant, the population is not a binding constraint anymore. And yet, even through decades of this happening, there is no reversal of this patriarchy. So how, why it's not breaking this causality chain that you described? And the second question that I had is, there are some authors that say, uh, for instance, uh, you know, Richard Reeves or others that say basically over the past decades since the Second World War in the West, uh, women have had access to mass education, they have access to uh, all types of labor opportunities, uh, and, and therefore, and we are seeing the results now. You know, you have elite universities full of women, the women are overperforming in education, in a lot of uh, labor opportunities, in, in politics everywhere to a certain extent, and it was very fast progress, and therefore we don't need to worry about this as much anymore, because patriarchy is being de facto defeated, and we need to worry about other things, so what is your opinion about this? Thank you. Oh, that's a really interesting couple of questions. Um, on this birth rate issue, in some ways, you know, there are other factors at play 
that determine how societies work. And we have mentally divorced this population question from the patriarchy question. And so states are running under their own steam now. Whether birth rates are high or birth rates are low, it's still a, an issue of national interest. We don't often interrogate why that isn't an issue of national interest. But for example, in states like Hungary, they don't want immigrants to have more kids. They just want mm -hmm. local people to have more kids. So there are different layers of oppression or you know, inequality that are playing out in the way that the state is behaving. So there are desirable children and there are the undesirable children. Are the children conforming to how we want them to behave or are they not conforming to how we want them to behave? So, you know, it's not as simple as birth rates rise and then patriarchy dissolves, of course, because now patriarchy is embedded in so many of the other ways that we live, in religion. Now, again, why does the Vatican care so much about how many children you have? Just recently, the Pope said people are having, keeping too many dogs and not having enough babies. They treat their ba dogs like children. They should be having more kids. Why does he care? He cares because the rise of institutional religion happened with the, with the rise of the patriarchal state. Its um, desires and its aims became intertwined over time, but we don't see it that way anymore. In the US, for example, this abortion issue mm. is often led by religious conservatives, of course. It's, it's treated as an ethical issue, and so we think of it as a religious question. But the reason it's a religious question in the first place is because of the development of religion over thousands of years and its intertwining with the patriarchal state. But those two things are now divorced in our imaginations. And your second question about education. Education, of course, is just one plank of equality. There are so many other aspects to it. You know, how easy is it for you to get a job? You know, there are many countries in which there are equal educational opportunities for women, but not equal job opportunities, not equal opportunities to earn, not an equal division of labor inside the home. So <laughs> there is so much more to it than that. What has essentially happened is that you know, systems of oppression become woven in to all our institutions, all our you know, ways of imagining ourselves. And real revolution requires us to extricate ourselves from all of it. Um, and if we're honest, do we really want that? You know, the last chapter in my book, I look at Iran and the 1979 revolution. I uh, should add, I wrote this before the current protests. And you know, here is a revolution that in 1979 was led by socialists and women. Everyone was on the streets. It was all people. It wasn't just religious conservatives who were fighting for regime change. Everyone was out there. So how did it end up worse for women afterwards than before? Why did that happen? And a lot of it is to do with tradition, that people said that the Shah's regime was too much in hock to the West, and that if we're going to create a new nation, it has to be traditional has to be Iranian, really Iranian. And that idea of tradition was bound up with patriarchy, because in so many countries, tradition equals patriarchy. And so they ended up with a more patriarchal state than they had before. It was, it was patriarchal before, it's just a different kind of patriarchy mm -hmm. afterwards. And that is the hard thing that we, you know, as much as we say we want equality, if I were to say to you all, do you, would you give up your religion for equality? Would you give up democracy? Would you give up the way your family works, the nuclear family? All of this would have to be rethought. Marriage, everything would have to be rethought in order for us to really create this equal society from scratch. 
I don't think most people are ready for that, and this is why so many revolutions fail. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, just a question over here and then Charlie. Hi, Angela. Hi, thank you so much for the very interesting talk. Uh, my name is Yulia. I'm an LSE alumni who currently tries to do research for a living, which with an emphasis on tries. But <laughs> so one of the questions I have is, Angela, whether throughout your research you noticed any other notions of gender appearing, or perhaps something other than male or female, or perhaps maybe there were instances where it just didn't really matter? So yeah, I'm going to take a couple of questions. Oh, okay. There's, there's yeah, quite course. a lot of questions, and then maybe you can answer a few at a time, yeah, if that's okay. Course, yeah. Charlie. Hi, my name's Charles. I'm a recovering patriarch um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and an environmentalist. Um, I, I noticed that Mary Wollstonecraft was living at the same time as Alexander von Humboldt, who, who was the champion of environmentalism, and I wonder if net zero and what we're seeking to achieve is really possible with the patriarchy and the nuclear family in place as they currently mm -hmm. are. That's for you, too. Yeah. <laughs> is, is net zero impossible to achieve? <laughs> Why are you putting that one on me? <laughs> we hope not. Got to try and, you know, dismantle everything, as per Angela. Angela, do you want to? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, just this first question. Yeah, we see so many different ways of thinking and, and imagining gender all over the world. Um, this very kind of rigid binary that treats men and women as though we have a suite of physical and psychological differences between us is peculiar to Europe. Um, there are many different ways. So there are many indigenous societies in America, for instance, um, in which there is a tradition of two-spirit, or there are some people who told me about m more gender forms than that. Um, in India, of course, there's the Hijra community, this very long-standing not always very well respected, but this at least a space for an accommodation for this idea that gender doesn't just manifest in two, <coughs> two simple camps. Um, but even as we go into antiquity, you know, if you look at ancient Athens, for instance, the literature of ancient Greece, the gods and goddesses, there is a huge amount of tension around, you know, this idea that gender doesn't just exist in the simple masculine and feminine, that there are gods and goddesses who transcend that. Athena, you know, famously the warrior goddess, the symbol of war. Um, what patriarchy does essentially is even acknowledging that, these, that gender isn't as simple as we imagine it to be, demand that we treat it as, it, as though it is. And again and again, you see that in the literature. Um, if you read the wonderful work of Walter Penrose, the historian, he writes really beautifully about how um, in one of the texts attributed to Hippocrates, there is guidance for parents on what to do if you want a child that is clearly feminine or clearly masculine, that really fits into these categories perfectly, because the belief was that a male-leaning seed from the mother or the a female leading seed from the father could create something, a child that didn't follow those gender norms perfectly. And the way that Penrose interprets this is to say that, you know, this isn't about a society following gender norms. This is a society struggling to follow gender norms, really having to battle against the fact that it knows that people don't fit into these narrow rules very easily, that the reality shows us that we're not all perfectly masculine or perfectly feminine, and yet, how can we force people to live this way? Thank you. Um, I'm going to 
Cassia, and then maybe we'll have a couple of online questions. So, okay, and then come back to you later. Hi, thanks so much for um, this talk. It was really interesting to hear it. I have a slightly different kind of question, which is about what you think the political implications of your book are. Um, obviously, to write a book about the history of patriarchy in 2023 is, you know, it's going to be a different book if you wrote it in 1970 or mm -hmm. before that. And so I'm wondering if you could just sort of talk to us about why this book and why now, and also what you think that feminists can or should learn from this about politics today. Well, the reason I wanted to write this book was, as I was saying earlier, when I wrote Inferior, I had a chapter in there on um, male domination. And, you know, anthropologists would repeatedly say, we haven't always been male dominated like this, there are matrilineal societies, there is more variation. And the question that readers kept asking me in 2017 was, well, how did we come to this then? How, if we weren't always male-dominated, then why are we male-dominated now? And I did not have a good answer to that question, because remarkably, the literature isn't very big on this question. You know, the last big historical text looking at the creation of patriarchy was Gerda Lerner's um, The Creation of Patriarchy, which was about 40 years ago. And we know a lot more since then. We've learned so much more, um, especially through archaeology and also through genetics. We have some really good evidence from ancient DNA. So this is a kind of holistic question on so many fronts. So it wasn't the political moment that wanted me to write it. It was just that I was so bothered by that question that I didn't have a good answer to it, that even when I Googled it, there was so little that we have these piecemeal, you know, we have Engels and we have... Feminist literature on, like you say, on capital, on the state, on, you know, bits of it, little bits of it, but not bringing it together. And I'm not pretending that I've brought everything together. I haven't. But I just wanted to at least start to answer that question for myself and get kind of start to get a handle on it. And it really has changed how I think about power now. You know, it's easy to become resigned to patriarchy when you think of it as this monolithic thing that just exists and it doesn't matter what you do, it will always be there, which is often how we think about it. You know, when we talk about smashing the patriarchy, the implication is often that however hard we smash it, there'll always be a little bit left. <laughs> um, and I just, you know, if we look at the fundamentals, where, where this originates, if we look at the origins of the state, if we look at what makes people vulnerable within families, then I would hope that we can start to come up with real policies that actually do work. So for example, if we know that patrilocal marriage, the tradition of a bride moving to live with her husband when she gets married, her husband's family when she gets married, was, was a necessary condition for patriarchy. I really think so, because that's how an individual becomes vulnerable once they don't have sources of support anymore. Well, what can we do to end patrilocal marriage? How can we make sure that women always have sources of support around them, that they never have to feel vulnerable in their own homes? Um, there is so much on all these different counts. There's so much that we can do. Peter. Um, so yeah, just a couple of questions from online. 
Uh, the first one is, what surprised you the most in the process of researching and writing for your new book? Um, the second one is, what do you think is the most proactive thing that we can do today to dismantle patriarchal gender norms and encourage changes in, in the law? Um, one other one, um, what are the consequences of assuming that patriarchy and other types of hierarchy are natural for our economic system? Just going on the last question, I'm still surprised at how many people I meet still think that patriarchy has its origins in the size difference between men and women, <laughs> size and strength. I honestly didn't think I'd need to write about this when I wrote the book because I just assumed that that had already been debunked. But it really hasn't. Um, it's just so common for people to assume that men have always had a bit more power over women because they're stronger. Um, but the fact that, you know, the further you go back into prehistory, you don't see um, these rigidly male-dominated societies. You just don't. The maybe we will have that evidence one day. We just don't have it right now. You, the further you go, the more egalitarian societies look like Chattel Huyuk. Um, and also the fact that not all societies are patriarchal, rigidly patriarchal. But not just that. This word patriarchy, rule of the father, what other animal societies do we see it in? Practically none. Almost, even if you look among other primates, when we talk about male domination in other primates, for example, chimpanzees, when primatologists talk about male domination, they are generally talking about males dominating other males, not males dominating females. There are female hierarchies, even within chimpanzees. And chimpanzees are just one of the two closest species to us genetically. The other one, the bonobo, is female-dominated. In fact, I saw for myself, I went to San Diego Zoo to look at bonobos in captivity with the world's leading bonobo researcher, and a male had just been really severely injured by an older female, and he was standing in a corner, crouched in a corner, scared that it might happen again. And it's not because the females are bigger. The male bonobos are, on average, bigger than the female bonobos. It's because female bonobos form such tight networks. They have support. The key to power is not size or strength. It's support. It's how much of a network you can attract around you. The alpha male chimp is not always the biggest or the strongest or the most bullying. It's often the one that can form alliances the best, who people can trust who they know will be the fairest, because even animals want the people who have power over them to be fair. We don't often kind of absorb those learnings from the rest of the world, including the animal world, but also the wider world outside Europe, into the way that we think about gender. The fact that we have so many powerful women in, in history, the fact that we have so many women warriors in history, there's an excellent book by Pamela Toller, Women Warriors, in which she says, you know, why do they sit so lightly on our consciousness, all these women warriors? There are so many of them, millions of them. And yet our underlying assumption that history was always patriarchal never changes. That is what needs to shift. We need to shift that underlying narrative and ask whether gender is a story that has always changed throughout history, not kind of these women or these females being exceptions to that main narrative. And I have to try and remember the other questions now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It was, uh, the first one is what surprised you the most uh, when researching and, and writing? 
It all surprised me, to be honest, because I'm not an academic, I'm a journalist, so I was learning while the reader was learning. Mm. Um, and I had to keep moving things around and changing the way I wrote because everything kept shifting uh, all the time. But I think what has stayed with me is to remember that power does not work in a binary way. Patriarchy is not about all men oppressing all women. It is about uh, levers of power being pulled depending on the ways that we can accumulate personal advantage. Women as well perpetuate patriarchy. They are you know, part of this system because sometimes it works for them to play that role in order to gain um, advantage in the short or long term. The classic example being Denise Candiotti's patriarchal bargain, the mother-in-law. You know, here we have a woman who um, in certain societies, in patriarchal societies, especially within patriarchal families, will enter a family as a daughter-in-law who will be oppressed, but she goes along with it because one day she will be the mother-in-law doing the oppressing. <laughs> and I have to say, my mother-in-law is here, and that is not true. <laughs> um, I'll take a few more questions from the floor. Yeah, there's one here and um, just one over there. Thank you. Hi, Angela. Lovely talking to you, hearing you. And just wanted to ask you, has numbers, you know, the gap in numbers between men and women played anything in favor of patriarchy? The gap in? Numbers, you know, and more, more female or less number of females oh, right. in the history. Uh, Angela, I'll take um, a couple more. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Hi Angela, thanks for a really great talk. Um, I was really intrigued by what you were showing on kind of really prehistoric civilizations, and I wondered when you showed that you know there wasn't much difference between men and women, if there were evidence of more kind of egalitarian societies at that time, and if you think that you know other aspects of oppression also came along with the kind of birth of the state. Just take one more, just there. Yeah, thank you. Also, so you mentioned a lot about the current um, still predominant tendency to over-exaggerate the biological differences uh, between men and women and that also made me think about emotions and like you said when you were talking to B that your work was more scrutinized because people would call you emotional and that stuck with me because my mother says the same thing and she's also a journalist so I wonder if that's a feature of the media as well that she says that even till date so even when outside uh, on the periphery or on the surface it looks like there's a lot of equality, there's a huge uh, emphasis that is placed on uh, the emotionality and the difference between emotionality of men and women and um, often that is used as a way to further emphasize the patriarchy and I was wondering if that ever came up in your research in the history of it forming and if so at what point did that become a um, very significant feature. Mm. Thank you. Oh, that's interesting. So the different numbers, so I assume you're talking about birth rates and, yeah, the numbers of men and women. Well, we do see still in Asia there, is, there are still highly skewed sex ratios in countries like China and India because of selective female feticide uh, and sometimes murder of very young children because of this sun preference. And that sun preference, as I was saying earlier, has its roots in this idea that the family should be having more children, especially sons who will go and fight for, for the state. Um, and that fighting bit is also important because it does mean that there have been many periods in history in which there have been less men because the men have gone away and died for the state. 
So this isn't a kind of consistent thing in which there have always been more men than women because of son preference. Those sons are also victims of the patriarchal state because they are essentially being offered up to the state to die for it. Um, it was in the Mongol Empire, actually, that Genghis Khan brought in um, conscription. Um, I'm sure there was conscription before that, but you know, this, uh, he would require children as young as 15, boys as young as 15, to be taken away from their families and trained apart from their families so that they would lose that emotional attachment and whatever kind of um, loyalty they had would be transferred to him, to the state, rather than to the family. And this is a really important thing to remember. Um, the, again, this comes back to the psychology of it, that what the patriarchal state then essentially does, in so many ways, is create tension and mistrust even among family members, even between husbands and wives, between children and their parents. And this is really crucial. The fact that um, this system of power works at that level is what gives it such staying power and persistence, is that it can make even, you know, for example, in India, there is this phrase, prayadan, for daughters-in-law. This idea that your daughter is not actually your daughter. You're just looking after her until she goes to her husband's house. And that's an emotional rift that you have created between the parent and the child already. And, you know, or even for boys, this idea that you are sending your son away to war, for example, in the Mongol Empire, you're creating an emotional rift. And it's those emotional bonds that we also need to learn to repair if we are really to recover the damage of what has been done by the patriarchal state. And these other forms of oppression, of course, you know, slavery and captive taking is one of, um, in, in written records, one of the oldest forms of oppression, and it really is universal. We see it everywhere. Um, and certainly in Orlando Patterson's work, this great scholar on slavery, what you see is, an, is again and again mirrors between the dehumanization and exploitation of slaves very much later being translated into marriage laws and the way that marriage laws worked in certain countries. Um, so you can see a parallel there. Of course, that's not to say that all wives are like slaves. The degree of agency and freedom that you have in marriage is determined by how the state sets those rules, what negotiation you have within that marriage, and what other forms of status you have. There have always been queens. There have always been women of high status in society who have power over other men and women. Um, and these are all interwoven with each other. That's why you can't think about gender equality as this kind of one thing that we can fix and then everything else we can do later. These are all interconnected. As long as you are able to dehumanize anyone, you haven't fixed the problem of gender inequality. And this emotional uh, argument that you were saying, yeah, we can recognize it in some countries, but what is interesting is when you look at different literatures in different cultures, the variation in the way that women and men are described according to what that society demands. So certainly in some literature you can see them being described as more emotional and flighty, certainly in ancient Greek literature. And possibly part of that is because that concern about uh, women kind of escaping the home or having their own lives and not having children quickly enough meant that after a while in societies like ancient Athens, uh, girls were being married off very young uh, to, to men much older than them. So what do you expect in a relationship in which the, the husband might be in his 30s and she might be a teenager? Of course she's going to seem more flighty and 
irrational because she's a teenager. <laughs> she's going to seem less capable to you because she's married to a man in his 30s or 40s. So these stereotypes are sometimes a product of you know, the societies that we're in and the artificial relationships that we've created between people. Thanks, Angela. We've got round, I think, some room for one more round of questions. I'm going to take one from over there right at the back and then some online questions. Yeah. While the mics are roving, I just want to say that I'm really holding on to your comment about support networks, mm. and I will continue to digest that. I think that's a really beautiful, unifying principle. Of the, obviously, we're now finding out about patriarchy and what it is, but it's, it's wonderful to hear means to tackle it, and mm. that as, a, as an important one, historically and obviously now. Yeah, we don't, we don't think about that enough, that mm. what, what is it that really makes an individual vulnerable? And it's not having sources of support. That's yeah. all that power is, really. It's having sources of support. Hi. Thank you so much. This was really interesting. My name is Julia. I'm a student here of a master's degree in development management. Um, so my question is, uh, your argument was the emergence of the state and the need of growth for the population has led to this patriarchy. Uh, but my question is, who put these rules into place? Why were men in power in the first place to decide that patriarchy should be established. Thank you very much. This is a really hard one to answer because, of course, you could say, with the rise of the state, why wasn't it that we get matriarchies at the end of it rather than patriarchies? Mm -hmm. And this is, this is why I want to come back to this question of patrilocality. You know, as humans, it is not a good idea, of course, for us to just breed with our immediate families or in our immediate communities. Generally, most societies in the world will have some system of sending either men out to marry or women out to marry, so, some kind of you know, way of doing it. Patrilocality is where the women, woman is sent out to marry. And like I said, not all societies are patriarchal because they don't all practice this. So for example, the Mosuo in China, who are matrilineal, they practice what anthropologists have sometimes termed walking marriage. So essentially a girl, when she comes of age, is given uh, a chamber in her mother's house, because everyone stays in their mother's house throughout their lives, so men will be raising their sister's children rather than their own children. So this woman will be have a chamber in her mother's house, and she invites a man in, and he stays the night, and then he leaves the next day. That's the extent of marriage, and she can invite whoever she wants. Um, so this patrilocal marriage, essentially what it does, is it creates vulnerable people through that system because it takes someone from the comfort and security of their own home and it puts, makes them a stranger in somebody else's home. And anyone who is a stranger, as we know from accounts of slavery and captives, is easily exploited by everyone in that family. You know, every single person in that extended family is able to uh, exploit that, that person then. So it's patrilocality along with, I think, the rise of the state that creates this, this system. But of course, it happens very slowly. So that's not to say that there wasn't negotiation. You can even see in Assyrian clay tablets, men and women negotiating the rights to divorce, what will be their duties within marriage. Um, it happens so gradually that women only very slowly disappear from the kind of from public life. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I know there's quite a few more questions, but perhaps you can have a chance to chat to Angela over book signing outside because it's time to close the event. And I'm so grateful to all of you for being here to celebrate and continue the legacy of Mary Wollstonecraft. And Angela, thank you so much for your talk and your amazing book. Just, just uh, shortlisted for the Orwell Prize, by the way. Yay. translators who are on the screen with us and the fantastic team at the LSE and at the Inequalities Institute for yeah making everything go smoothly and thank you thank you so much B yeah thank you thank you for listening you can subscribe to the LSE events podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.